Well, hey, ABC College, hope you're doing well on this Wednesday. Thanks so much yet again for tuning in to our theology and doctrine study we're doing this summer called CORE, looking at essentials of what Christians believe. Uh, as you can see, uh, I've moved locations again. I decided I'd come and set up in the cafe just to do something different. Um, who knows, I may be in every room of the church by the time uh, this thing is over with. Uh, there may be some ambient noise from other stuff going on, but hopefully you can hear me fine uh, this week. But no matter where you're at, I hope you're doing well. I hope your summer is going great, and we love you guys. We miss you, and we can't wait uh, till we get to see you again. Uh, but this week, if you've been keeping up with us, you know that we've been walking through a lot of essential elements of what Christians believe, and we began with week one talking about the Bible for a few weeks, and we talked about God, who He is, and specifically the Trinity for a bit. Uh, then the past, uh, really last week, we talked about who are we and humanity, and what does it mean to be made in God's image? What does it mean to be created uh, by God? And here we arrive in week six, now talking about how things have gone wrong with, with all of this. Uh, we're going to talk about sin tonight. We're going to talk about the fall of uh, humanity. Uh, but here's the thing. I mean, in anything in theology, you know, if one thing probably doesn't need to be proved, it's the fact that sin has wrecked the world. Uh, that the world is broken. I mean, right now in our country, early in our world, obviously we're living in a global pandemic. Uh, we're under the threat of a virus that we can't quite seem to control. In America, we have uh, yet again the exposure of racial injustice and the division in our country. You know, but then 2020 in general, gosh, has just been like a... <laughs> A living picture of the brokenness of sin in the world. You know, we had like murder hornets. We had like World War III almost break out. Like I heard the other day that rats in New York City, because there's not enough trash, they're becoming uh, cannibals. <laughs> and so you know, 2020 is a living example of the brokenness of sin. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, tonight is how sin has broken the world, that this world is not the way it should be. And we're going to talk about why that's the case and where we even see that beginning in the Bible. So here's the thing. Uh, what I want you to do tonight, just kind of like last week, is I want you to get your Bible uh, and find Genesis 3. That's where we're going to be uh, spending a lot of our time tonight. So find Genesis 3 and do this, uh, like last week. Uh, find that chapter and then pause this video. Read chapter 3. won't take you very long. And then once you read chapter 3, unpause this video and then we'll keep on going. Okay? You ready? Pause now. Okay, now you're back. You've read chapter 3 of Genesis. Uh, if not, you just saw me pause awkwardly again for a second. But let's talk about it now and what this shows us about sin. Well, remember last week, you know, in Genesis 1 and 2, we saw how God created the world. He created it good. He created it for His glory. And it, it was a beautiful thing at first. But now we're going to see how in Genesis 3, all that went wrong, how sin has wreaked havoc on the world. So I want to point out just a few quick things in Genesis 3 uh, that really teach us a lot about what sin is and what it does um, in the world and in our lives. Because if you notice, Genesis 3 is yet again just a part of the story of Genesis. Um, it's the, the narrator, uh, most likely Moses, being inspired by God, uh, telling us the story of the fall, but it doesn't give us a lot of commentary. It's not like a bunch of like bullet points of information. But yet it does give us a ton of information about sin and about what it is. Okay, 
So let's talk about uh, the story for just a minute, and then we'll get more into some specific information. Okay, just kind of walk with me through this story for just a minute. So we have that God uh, makes Adam and Eve the uh, the first human beings, kind of you know representing all of us. Ultimately, He creates them. He places them in the Garden of Eden. He gives them everything that they would need. He gives them work to do. He gives them a beautiful place to live. He tells them to be fruitful and to multiply. And He does all this in the context of a relationship with them, the way that they were designed to live and function. And the beautiful thing about all this is that God gives them complete freedom to really do whatever they want and to live out those commands uh, in their own freedom, except for one thing. And if you've read the Bible like ever before, you know what that one thing is. It's to not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happens? Well, Genesis 3 begins with the foreboding entrance of the serpent. Uh, the serpent which the Bible would teach us in like Revelation 12, 9, is Satan, a fallen angel who's rebelled against God, who has you know, then since been cursed and really is ultimately going to face eternal punishment from God. But in the meantime, even, even in Genesis 3, he's looking to lead other created beings, namely humans, uh, to also rebel against God and to kind of take them down in uh, his destruction as well. So the serpent, Satan, enters the picture. And what does he seek to do? Well, he wants to wreak havoc on what God uh, has created. So what's his tactic on wreaking havoc? Well, his tactic is not to come in and just, you know, use physical weapons. You know, static is definitely not to come in and just make a bunch of straight, bold-faced accusations uh, against God or against Adam and Eve. Really, his tactic is it's way more subtle than that. His tactic is a question. And really, it's specifically that he gets Adam and Eve to question the goodness of God. And that he wants them to question the goodness of God in telling them not to eat of the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, Satan leads Adam and Eve into thinking that God is really holding out on them, that He really doesn't have their best interest in heart, that really they probably know better than God, that they know how to live a better and a more fruitful life than the God that made them. So Satan leads Adam and Eve to, to not trust God. Well, you may be asking, well, why would God tell Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of that tree? Like, it seems kind of weird of God. Well, I love the way that theologian John Salomer says it. He says, the snake implied by his questions that God was keeping this knowledge from the man and woman, while the sense of the narrative in the first two chapters has been that God was keeping this knowledge for the man and the woman. So what does that mean? Well, that means that the reason that God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the fruit of the tree, you know, it wasn't because he was holding out on Adam and Eve. It wasn't because he was trying to, you know, not let them enjoy life to the fullest. It's really that God wanted Adam and Eve to primarily trust and obey him and to find their definition of good, not in their own ability, but in God. That they wanted to, that God wanted them to trust him, obey him, and find goodness really defined in relationship with him and not on their own. So it was meant to be a connection and really a symbol of their dependence on God. So when they chose to eat of the fruit, it was a breaking of that dependence, a breaking of that relationship. You know, and even notice in the chapter there, that even more, the serpent says if they eat of the fruit, they're going to become like God. When the truth is they were already like God in the sense they were made in God's image. They didn't need anything else to become more like God. Actually, in disobeying God, they end up becoming less like God than they were initially. 
But like he always does, Satan, he loves to twist the truth. And he twists God's words. And he tells Adam and Eve to believe this lie about God. And that belief led to disobedience. That they, they eat the fruit and sin enters the world. And in this story, we learn a ton about sin. Honestly, way more than we have, we have time to talk about today. But I want to give you just a few observations that I think give us a lot of insight about sin, what sin is. First thing is this, is that we see that sin is a lot more than breaking God's rules or breaking some arbitrary rules. Like in this story, you know, while Adam and Eve definitely broke God's commands, they broke a rule, you know, they broke a lot more than a rule because the heart of sin is more than breaking rules. The heart of sin, their sin and ours, is really a refusal to trust God. It's seeking to live apart from God. It's refusing to trust God's goodness, His love for us, and it's to try to seek to live apart from Him. That's the real heart of what sin is, and that was the heart of the sin of Adam and Eve. So sin is a lot more than breaking rules. Sin is just as much an attitude as it is an action. That's the first thing that we see. The second thing we see is this, is that, um, that sin can be both sin of commission and omission. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, Eve in this story, she sinned by commission. She committed a sin when she actively took the fruit of the tree and she ate it, even though God said not to. She committed an active sin. But think about Adam. You know, where was Adam in all of this? Well, Adam was likely right beside um, Eve from the get-go, and he was just as guilty. But his sin was not initially a sin of commission, although he does eat the fruit. His initial sin was a sin of omission. It's not what he did, it's what he didn't do. Where instead of loving his wife and leading her to honor God like God called him to, instead he allowed her to sin and disobey God, and then he ate the fruit as well. So his was commission and omission. But it was what he did do and what he didn't do. And sin can be the same thing for us. We also see that sin destroys relationships. Look at this story again. We see that in this story, sin leads Adam to, like we mentioned, not lead his family well, but instead to be passive and to be cowardly. Sin also led to shame and disconnection between humanity and God. That after they sin, you know, Adam and Eve go hiding from God. They recognize their nakedness and they go hide in the woods and cover themselves with fig leaves instead of walking with God in relationship like they were designed to do. Sin also led to fighting between Adam and Eve. If you look in the story, Adam blames God for giving him Eve. And then he also blames Eve and kind of tries to pass uh, the baton, pass the buck of his sin over to Eve, saying she's the one that made him do it. That it was the, the woman that you gave me, God. She's the one that made me sin. Adam refuses to take responsibility for his actions. Uh, sin also led Adam and Eve to recognize their own shame after they had sinned. You know, they, they make these leaves, uh, these kind of leaf garments for themselves. And it shows us how sin brings this inner shame and brokenness. Sin even jacks up our relationship with ourselves. It brings this inner turmoil and guilt. So ultimately, sin breaks our relationships with our families, with our friends, with God, and, and even with ourselves. That sin wreaks havoc on everything. We can even add that sin breaks our relationship with creation. That we view creation as not something to be uh, taking care of and stewarded, but we use creation as something just to be consumed and abused. So it, it, wreaks, um, it wreaks havoc on everything in the world. But we also see another thing about sin. We see that sin promises freedom, but it brings slavery. It promises freedom, but it brings slavery. Because although Adam and Eve thought they were gaining more freedom by eating of that fruit, really by sinning they became more enslaved 
than they ever had been before, or they ever had been before. They went from respecting God to rebelling against God. They went from receiving blessing from God to receiving punishment from God. They went from God being their friend to God being their enemy. They went from having a love for God to being afraid of God. They went from, you know, honesty with God to deceiving God. They went from being humble before God to having pride before God. That all the ways they were free and had freedom with God really led to them being enslaved in sin. It led them to sinning more and more and more. That's kind of the story of even the the rest of the Old Testament is this sin kind of going worse and worse in creation. So we see that's what sin does. It promises freedom, but it really brings slavery. So that's kind of Genesis 3, but for the rest of our time, let's think even more about what sin is. Well, if you just follow the story of the Old Testament, you're going to see a lot of definitions and a lot of illustrations of what sin is and what it does in the world. I'll give you just a couple of examples, just following the narrative of the Old Testament. We've already seen how sin breaks relationships in Genesis 3, but sin also brings social disorder, that throughout Genesis, humanity begins to fall into things like murder, chaos, evil, rape, abuse, all terrible things, to the point where God hits the reset button on humanity because of how bad things get. That He sends a flood to wipe out humanity, He only saves Noah and his wife, and He restarts. It gets that bad. Sin also brings rebellion. If you look at the story of Israel, God's chosen people, we see how over and over again they rebel against God's authority and they reject His offer of relationship. We also see in the book of Leviticus, in really all the Old Testament law, that sin is a legal transgression, that it is breaking God's laws. And that's why there's so many laws given to us to know how to obey God well in the Old Testament. Sin also is uncleanness, that sin makes us dirty. It makes us guilty before God. And Leviticus would show us that we need a sacrifice in order to have that dirtiness, that uncleanness taken away. Uh, sin also can be accumulated over generations. The Old Testament talks about how there are sins and sin that gets accumulated from one generation to the next, you know, which can be interpreted even that what one generation tolerated, the second generation embraces, and sin just gets worse and worse and worse over time, something that we've seen even in our country and in our own history. And one more thing in the Old Testament, sin also brings death. That many people die for specific sins in the Old Testament, but in general, sin is deadly and it brings death, not just physically that we we weren't created to die, but now we do because of sin, but also because sin brings spiritual death. As if nothing changes between us and God in our life, then when we die, we'll spend forever being punished for our sin in hell. So sin brings physical and spiritual death. So that's the Old Testament that we see of sin. But what about the New Testament? Well, the New Testament uses really four different Greek words to talk about sin that I want to share with you. They give us some insight. Uh, The first Greek word is the most common Greek word for sin. It's hamartia. Uh, Hamartia means missing the mark. You may have heard that before. Uh, And really, this word describes in general the way that in sin we fall short of God's standard. Doesn't mean it's just like a kind of happenstance, like, oh, I just made a mistake, but it's still a more intentional thing. But in sinning, we fall short of what God has made us for. You know, whether that's an intentional sin or even many times unintentional, that in sin we fall short of God's design for us and our behavior. Another word for sin is a paraptima, which means to trespass. This you know, means to break God's law intentionally or unintentionally, but it's to trespass God's law and what He said is good for us and what He says is right. 
Another word is parabasis. Uh, that word means disobedience. It means to defiantly, kind of high-handed, open-handedly defy God's law. And then the fourth one is, I, this is a hard one, but asabias, I think I said that right. Um, but it means ungodliness. This word shows us that sin is more than just even actions like we mentioned, but it's also character. That sin can be our, sin can be our active character of rebellion against God as we try to live on our own, apart from God. But to sum all this up, I want to give you a semi-long quote, but I think it's really helpful um, from a guy named Jerry Brashear, a theologian. He says this, he says, Sin includes both omission, where we do not do what we ought, and commission, where we do what we ought not do. Sin includes our thoughts, words, deeds, and motives. Sin includes godlessness, which is ignoring God and living as if there were no God, or as if we were God. Sin is idolatry, which is the replacing of God as preeminent with something or someone else, most often ourselves. Sin includes individuals, communities, networks, and the like, as individuals labor together for the cause of sin. Sin includes entire ways of thinking and acting, such as racism and pornography. Sometimes a sin is also a crime, such as murder. Sometimes it's not, such as adultery. Sin can be done deliberately or in ignorance. The practice of a particular sin can occur once, regularly, or even frequently. Sin includes breaking God's laws, breaching just human laws, defying godly authorities such as parents or pastors, and violating one's own conscience as well as conviction wrought by the God, by God the Holy Spirit. Sin includes perversion, using good things for evil purposes. Sin includes pollution, infecting good things with evil. Lastly, sin is the turning of a good thing, such as sex, work, money, or comfort, into an ultimate thing, so that it is worshipped as God in place of God and becomes a false god. Or to say it as Proverbs 29 does, Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. The answer is no one but Jesus Christ. That's a convicting quote, because it shows that all of us are guilty in some form of sin. And as we'll see in a second, if, we're, if we've broken one law of sin, we're guilty of breaking it all before God. So as we move on, let me give you three more key important passages about sin. So many we could look at tonight, but I want to give you three more that help us kind of unpack this in our conversation. The first one is Romans 5, uh, 12 through 14. It says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of all sinned, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. A lot we could say about that, but let me kind of just point out real quick one of Paul's points. He's saying this, is that we as humans inherit sin from Adam. That we have what we many times call a sinful nature. That we have an inherent guilt because we're all children, ultimately, of Adam and Eve. And because of his sin and our inherited sin, we all therefore stand guilty before God. That we're all sinners, both by nature and by choice. And really, our, the choices that we do in sinning come out of our sinful hearts that we receive from the womb. It's the way that we're born. And our sinful hearts, you know, they mean that we're not blank slates when we're born, but we're all sinners right from birth. I love my son Jude. He's almost three months old, but he's a sinner, you know, and I can even see it in the way he gets upset and frustrated with us sometimes when we're trying to serve him, that he's impatient. And he's also just a baby, but we're, you know, from the womb, we're all born with sinful tendencies because of the sin of Adam, uh, which means that we need God not to simply 
make us behave better in the end, but we need God to give us new hearts, that we have sinful hearts that need to be replaced and changed, not just behavior that needs to be fixed. Something we'll talk about more in a second. The second key passage I want to point out is James 1, 13 through 15. It says this, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. A lot we can say there, but really we see this in that passage, that God doesn't tempt us to sin, but that we are tempted to sin by our own sinful hearts. That our own sin, our own sinful inclination leads us to want to commit sinful actions. Third verse, also in James, is James 2.10. Says this, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. The point there is this is that all of us are guilty before God because all of us have committed at least one sin. That all of us have at least broken one of God's laws, that we've gone against the way that God would want us to live. It didn't take too long going through the Ten Commandments to say that at least you've lied, stolen, cheated, been dishonest, something like that. And ultimately, if sin really is trying to live disconnected and apart from God, we're all guilty of that from an incredibly early age, and really we're born into sin. So all of us, therefore, stand guilty before God in our sin. But thanks be to God that He has sent Jesus to save us from our sin, which we'll talk about Jesus way more next week, but we need to be reminded of that even tonight. Um, But a few more things I want to mention before we finish up for this evening is this. I want to talk about a few wrong ways to respond to the truth of sin. Because these are ways that whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, we all have wrong ways that we can respond to this hard truth of sin and what it is. First one is this, is don't minimize your sin. Uh, Sin is blatant rebellion against God, against the holy God of the universe. You know, so we shouldn't take sin lightly in any way. You know, we shouldn't think that sin is simply just a mistake that we made. But sin is really divine treason. So we got to take it seriously. So if you're a Christian, that means that you should be fleeing sin in every way possible. There's an old saying that says, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. So because sin leads to death, so we want to be fleeing from it. We don't want to take it lightly. But the second thing we want to see is that we don't want to excuse our sin. We don't want to minimize it. Um... Or that was the first point. We also don't want to excuse it. You know, because part of what it means to repent, to change your mind, to change your ways, and to serve God, which we'll define that a lot more later, but part of what it means to even repent is to own your sin, to admit it, to be sorry for it, but not try to be defensive for it. I'm a naturally defensive person many times, so I have to watch my own heart that I don't try to justify and defend myself against sin that I've committed against God and against other people. You know, when you are confronted with your sin, don't try to blame somebody else for it. Don't try to make excuses for it. Part of repentance and part of even being a Christian and even entering the Christian faith is to own your sin, to admit you're a sinner, to admit that you deserve God's punishment. The third thing is don't think that your sin is limited to just what you're aware of in your life. Uh, There's a doctrine that we have in Christianity um, called total depravity. And we'll probably talk more about this in future weeks. But the doctrine of total depravity has been distorted in in some ways uh, in church history. Some people think that total depravity means that everything about a human being is sinful and wrong. 
that we can do no good, accomplish no good. We're just completely vile worms. And that's, that's kind of a distortion of the doctrine of total depravity. Because the truth is this, is that Christians and non-Christians are capable of great things. That non-Christians can contribute great things to the world. They can commit great moral actions and do good things. And so that's really just God's common grace in life. So total depravity is not saying that everything we do is wrong. Everything we do is evil. What total depravity really says is this, is that every bit of our being, every corner of our existence, every corner of our life, hearts, and minds is stained with sin. That there is not one part of us that is not affected and influenced uh, by sin. That we can't say that, yeah, well, that one part of my life doesn't have any sinful you know, influence happening. You know, yeah, I know that I'm struggling in this area, but you know, my relationship with my parents, I'm great in that. My sin's not influencing that. But no, sin really gets into every nook and cranny of our life. So we got to be incredibly careful and really incredibly humble to posture ourselves before God and ask God, Lord, how is sin influencing even this area of my life that I don't uh, think about? I'm not thinking about how sin is influencing there. Another thing to think about is uh, don't compare your sin. You know, Jesus would tell us in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, that just because you don't murder somebody doesn't mean that you're good in that area completely. He said that, you know, if you have anger and bitterness in your heart, that you are guilty in a similar way of being a murderer. Doesn't mean it's the same thing, but he means that the root sin there of murder and anger are similar. That we can't say, okay, I haven't murdered somebody, you know, um, but I, yet I've been angry and bitter in my heart, I'm good. But no, God cares more about our hearts than just our external actions. He also doesn't want us to compare and just say, well, that guy murdered somebody. I'm not a murderer, so I must be good with God. No, he wants us to look at our hearts and have them open to him to see really where we have fallen short. We can't compare our sin to others. Instead, we got to compare ourselves to the perfect standard of God. That's the only one that we should be comparing ourselves to. A uh, few more points. Don't think of sin as just breaking the rules. We already kind of talked about this. Remember, sin is a heart posture more than just actions. And lastly, uh, don't ignore how your sin affects other people. So often in life we think there's certain sins that we commit in private that don't affect the other parts of our life, that don't affect our relationships. When the fact of the matter is all of our sin is going to affect our lives, it's going to affect our relationships with other people. So don't think that you have a certain pet sin that you kind of have under control. You know it's wrong, but yet it just affects maybe you and your inner life. That's going to affect a lot more than you think. It's going to really mess up your relationships. It's going to mess up your ability to even just connect with God and be spiritually healthy. That there is no such thing as a private sin we can keep tucked away, but that all sin is going to affect not just us, but those around us as well, which is why we have to be killing sin. Otherwise, it's going to be killing us. So as we close, we want to kind of remember this as we transition into our talk for next week, is how does God respond to sin? Well, the good news is this, is that God responds to sin not just by giving up on us, but He responds in patience and love. That God loves us too much to simply let us remain in our sin. That instead, He sent His Son, Christ, to live the perfect life we could never live and to die on a cross to take on the penalty for our sin so that we could be forgiven and brought back into a relationship with Him. 
And through that, even through the coming of Christ, God has begun the work of not just saving us as individuals, but even reconciling all of creation back to Himself, to bringing creation back to the way that it was designed to be. That's a beautiful, that's the beautiful story of the Bible is that God is working to make all things new in Christ and to redeem uh, creation from the curse of sin. But next week, we'll talk more about that. And next, really for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. So next week, we'll talk about the person of Christ, uh, what it means for him to be both fully God and fully man. And it's a hard thing to wrap your head around, but I think it's going to be great for us. And then the week after that, we'll talk about what has Jesus really done for us um, in his life, death, and resurrection. But as usual, if you have a question, you can send uh, a question in to the number here on the bottom of the screen. I'll do my best to answer it. Uh, But besides that, we hope you guys have a great week, and we'll see you soon.